So if you would tonight, go ahead, flip to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That will be probably the first place that we uh, begin reading tonight. Um, we have begun, so last, last time that we were together, we started asking questions about um, heaven eternal. We are now fully into the transition away from the intermediate state, and we're talking about our hope a billion years from now. A trillion years from now. Like, our hope eternal. Um, I want us to take a step back. So, last time, kind of the title that I gave the last, last session's sermon was After the Resurrection, because I wanted us to begin thinking about what it would look like after the resurrection. But before we go too deep into that, I want to take a step back. And tonight's sermon I've titled The Resurrection. So we're taking a step back so that we can begin to kind of press forward into this. Um, so the question that I have kind of on deck tonight for tonight's uh, sermon is, what is the resurrection and why is it so important? Um, we're going to address it. We're not going to spend too much time digging into the specifics of the resurrection. I'm going to kind of try to start off by giving us a concise like place to start in this conversation. But what I want to do, I've got two goals for tonight. And let me list those out and then uh, we'll kind of work towards them um, as the as the discussion progresses. So goal number one is I want us to see the resurrection as a pattern or a model to understand God's work. Specifically, I want us to see it as a pattern or a model to understand God's work in creation, right? Um, we're going to then look at the second goal, which is I want to encourage you to use this model that we developed from the first goal uh, when you consider heaven eternal. Right? I want us to see a pattern in the resurrection that we will then begin applying as we look towards answering questions about heaven eternal. Specifically, this is going to come, this idea, and what I want you to kind of start leveraging this is when you see language like we looked at last week when we were looking at in the book of Revelation there, at like the new heavens and the new earth, and all things will be made new, and that type of like transformative language at times we have looked at that as a like if I were writing a book and I just want to scrap and throw it in the trash and then I'm going to start fresh right what I want us to see in the resurrection is not this scrapping what we've done to throw it away but a transformation out of what is that maintains the continuity from before and after kind of one of the analogies that I'm that I think about myself, and this is kind of we'll, I'll try to I'm going to try to lead you to this towards the end. So we'll jump to the conclusion of tonight's lesson at the beginning here. Um, I want you to think about the impact that Christ's incarnation has on us, has had on us, outside of even just the religious aspect. What year do you find yourself in? So we are in 2024 what? AD. Do y'all know what AD 
stands for? Yes. Um, And the English translation of that would be in the year of our Lord. Who is that Lord? So you find yourself, you didn't invent this system, you were born and this system was already in widespread use. There's an impact that was had on the world that literally from that point on, entire cultures began defining time itself around that moment, right? Were there times before that? Were there times before Christ's incarnation? But something dramatic happened that shapes, when we look back, the way that we see everything, right? Even the way that we define time ourselves here in America is based on this impact that this life had that we would lit, like that, time, that the way that we communicate time to one another would be shaped and shifted by. Now, what I want us to see is that there's a day in our future that in the same way we can look back before Christ, that there'll be a moment where we can look back before the resurrection. This will not be an event horizon for which we cannot peer beyond. This will not be a moment for which everything that came after it had no resemblance of anything that came before it. But just as there there will be a moment that that we can now look back at that has shaped everything that came after it, there will be a moment in our future that will have even greater impact for us than that. And it will shape the way that we look back on history, right? More than just the way that we define time will be changed by it. Like, it will be so dramatic a change that the language that Scripture uses for it is making all things new. But this is not a throwing out of what was and then something completely different than anything that we've ever seen. But it is a restoration a renewal, and we're going to look at two places in Scripture tonight to kind of get that uh, get that point across. So, um, a quick word on the resurrection. Um, I'm pulling this from Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. He has a chapter on the resurrection, and for the sake of being concise here, I, I think it does a good job of giving us a starting point when we think about the resurrection. So, he says here, the Christ's resurrection was not simply a coming back from the dead as had been experienced by others before, such as Lazarus, which can be seen in John chapter 11. For then Jesus would have been subject to weakness and aging and eventually would have died again, just as all other human beings die. Rather, when he rose from the dead, Jesus was the first fruits. And this phrase, first fruits, comes from the text that we'll be looking at tonight in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Right. So rather, he rose from the dead... Or rather, he rose from the dead. Jesus was the first fruits of a new kind of human life. A life in which the body was made perfect, no longer subject to weakness, aging, or death, but able to live eternally. He goes on to say, Though Jesus' body was still a physical body, it was raised as a transformed body, never to be able to suffer, to be weak, or ill, or to die it had, as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 53, put on immortality. Uh, so tonight's, and this is not a new idea. This piece that we're, that 
we've just kind of covered about Christ's resurrection. And even um, you could go back to a number of sermons that I've preached myself, sermons that Dustin has, has preached. There's a, a dead horse that's raised up time and time again to be uh, beat to death again around the continuity of Christ in the resurrection and our hope for what our bodies will be like in the resurrection. But I want us to point, I want us to see that as a pattern that is also applied to creation itself, right? And we're going to look um, in Romans uh, chapter 8 to see this, uh, to see this hope that is put forward there, as well as the hope that creation has for the resurrection, right? So the, the two goals that we have is to put forward the resurrection as a pattern to understand God, God's working in restoring creation. The second goal is an encouragement for you to see this as a model that can be applied when we look and consider heaven eternal. That the work of restoring Christ to life in a body that was much like the body that he had, but transformed in some powerful ways, that same pattern will be seen with creation itself as creation is like the very fact that he's going to create a new heavens and a new earth shows us that there's a point with which we're looking to as reference. Right. When he says he's creating a new, he doesn't give us a name for this thing that we've not experienced at all. He calls it earth. So in that, he kind of lays out this idea of these similarities or this continuity between uh, the first and the last. So um, another quote that I want to give you that's from the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn. I've been kind of hyping this book up um, all throughout the study. It's a great book. If you don't have it, I encourage you to get it. Um, it will be a perfect companion to kind of go along with, um, with the study that we're doing. In chapter 8 of that book, he says this, and I think that this is like this captures the essence of what I hope to be able to communicate to you tonight, right? So um, when we consider heaven, and, and this is quoting him here, um, we shouldn't close our eyes and try to imagine the unimaginable. We should open our eyes because the present earth is as much a valid reference point for our envisioning the new earth as our present bodies are a valid reference point for envisioning our new bodies. Are y'all following me there? Like he, I think he probably says more eloquently in that short sentence or two what I've been trying to say for the last couple of minutes. So I'm going to read that again so that you can um, kind of lock that away because what I'm presenting to you tonight is not a new idea. I'm not presenting to you something that I've invented myself um, this is an idea that's, uh, that's well-founded in God's Word and uh, also in the minds of, of other believers. Um, so so here's, here's that idea presented again in Randy Alcorn's words here. We shouldn't close our eyes, so it's speaking specifically when considering heaven here. We shouldn't close our eyes and try to imagine the unimaginable. How many of you, when you think about heaven, that's oftentimes the thing that, that you do or the thing that you have to do to try to get close to what it might be like then, right? That's oftentimes what we think. We should not 
be thinking like that. We should, in fact, open our eyes. Open our eyes to what we see around us because the present earth is as much a valid reference point for envisioning the new earth as our present bodies are a valid reference point for envisioning our new body. Or the, our new bodies, our resurrection bodies, right? So that's the point that we want to explore tonight. And we're going to look at a couple of places in Scripture because I want to found us in that. I want us to draw this idea out so that we can see with our own eyes that this comes directly from God's Word. And, and with that, we're going to use that as we begin exploring, right? We're going to begin that as we continue answering questions along the way. So I would go so far as to say that the scope of Christ's resurrection not only encompasses our bodily resurrection, but in a sense, the resurrection of creation itself, right? The restoration of creation to, the, to its good, 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 good state, right? As you can see uh, in the creation narrative in the, the book of Genesis, God at no point along the way as he's doing this work considered things anything less than good, right? So um, if you're not already in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Go ahead and turn with me to chapter 15, verse 20. We'll begin in verse 20. We'll go through verse 26 here. So this is in this is kind of moving us towards that first goal, the goal that we see the pattern of the resurrection and understand God works in that way, right? That He's working to restore, to resurrect. Um, and, and we're going to see this, and then we'll be we'll spend just a brief period here, and then we'll look at Romans chapter eight to kind of tie those goals together. Uh, so First Corinthians chapter fifteen, beginning in verse twenty. I'm going to read through the whole thing, and then we'll just kind of go back through and talk about it. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits. Of those who have fallen asleep. So this is where that language of first fruits comes from here. For as by man came death, by man has also has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits. There's that word again. Christ, the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when Christ delivers the kingdom of God, the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule, every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. death. What event would we call that? That is the resurrection, right? That is the resurrection. That's the moment where this is all made new. This is that moment, right? Where the last enemy, that enemy being death, is destroyed. This is the moment death dies. We call this the resurrection, right? And we have spoken at length. So we're not going to go back into this, but I'm going to give you a couple of places that you can look at on the podcast where you could 
do another deep dive or a refresher if you want to spend time in this. If you were to look back to the systematic theology study, there is a specific section there called the resurrection, where we go into great detail on the resurrection, Christ's resurrection, the implication of the resurrection as it relates to our own hope. Christ being the first fruits, meaning this is the harvest. The harvest began with Christ. We can look to Him to know what the harvest has in store. right? In the same way that a farmer could go out and take his first fruits and have an idea about what the harvest will look like, we can look at Christ who is our first fruits of the resurrection and get an idea about what the harvest will look like. And we've done this at length. When it comes to looking at the body of Christ and comparing that to our own hope in our resurrected bodies and what we have in store there. Now, I want to bridge that because that hope that we have in the resurrection is a hope that in the same way that there's continuity between the lives that we live the bodies that we have and the bodies that we hope for in the resurrection. There's continuity likewise in the earth that you know that God called good from the beginning and the earth that you will know there. Are you with me? Do you think Scripture gives us that bridge? Let's look at it. Scripture most certainly gives us that bridge. And this is the bridge. This is kind of moving us towards goal number two, which is I want to encourage you. Now, I've clearly already invested my understanding of uh, our future hope of heaven itself in this. Um, I want to use this as an encouragement for you. If you have spent, if the majority of your energies, if the majority of your energy when you when you consider heaven can be summarized with this statement that you close your eyes and try to imagine the unimaginable. If that's you when you consider heaven, if that's the pattern that you take when you think about your hope for eternity, then I'm speaking to you. I want to encourage you to open your eyes. Right? Open your eyes. Because when we find ourselves raised on that day, there will be things that you see when you open your eyes that you've seen before. There will be things that you will know. That, that you won't have to relearn how this particular thing works. Because it's something that you will have experienced before. And I want us to draw that um, I want us to draw that out now as we kind of push towards goal number two, which is to encourage you to take this same model that we apply when we consider the resurrection and our own bodily resurrection and how we can apply that um, to our considerations regarding our hope for heaven eternal. So Romans chapter eight, verse 18 is where we'll be. Beginning looking at this. Now, um, this won't be the first time that I've said this either. Um, so I would encourage you to go back to the Roman study and you could get an even deeper dive into this. Um, this entire section by following through as we went through the entire book of Romans. Um, somewhere in the middle of that we hit Romans chapter 8 and we, we talked um, about things that we're going to be talking about. 
tonight. But that was several years ago, and our memories are not perfect, and we've likely forgotten the need to be reminded and re-encouraged, so I'm hoping that that will happen here tonight. So follow along with me. We're going to, I'm going to read Romans 8, 18 through 23 here, and then when we're, when we're done, we'll come back to that idea that I kind of dropped there at the beginning, maybe dropped it a little early at was kind of going to be my concluding thought, <laughs> but we'll, we'll circle back to that. But let's read this text and then think about what this is saying to us here. So verse 18, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Verse 19, for the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. I want to pause there and don't read ahead and cheat, but I wonder what that revealing might look like. When that revealing might happen. Is there a specific moment where this revealing will be occurring? Right? I want you to be thinking about that as we read verse 19. We're going to get to that answer because it's going to be in the run of text that we're, that we're reading here. But I want to just point your eyes towards that. That creation itself, that's what we might call in heaven eternal, old earth. Right? You're living on old earth now. Right? This creation waits eagerly, longing for... It's on demise and destruction. In, in most of the ways that we think about heaven eternal, that's how we would have to answer this, is that heaven or the current earth awaits its own destruction and being thrown in the trash bin. Right? Now I want you to look at this and I want you to ask yourself, what is creation waiting for? For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility. Not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope. This is a long sentence with a lot of meat in it. So I want to ask you some questions as we're reading verse 20 here. So we're going to go back to the beginning of verse 20. So we've got in verse 19, creation eagerly awaiting the revealing. A spoiler alert, that revealing is the resurrection. We're going to get to that. But I just if you didn't get that by the illusions that I gave earlier, know that that revealing is the resurrection. That'll be made clear here in a second. But I want you to I want to ask you some questions as we go through verse 20 here. For creation was subjected to futility. What is this? When we say that creation was subjected to futility, what is that? Can you give me any, any examples of what that might look like? Thorns and thistles, perhaps? Resources that deplete? Resources that deplete. Tornadoes? Natural disasters. What we would a, a big group that you could just classify as natural evil, right? Like not evil that had intent, but evil that was subjected upon, in a sense, right? Now, I want us to think about this. Creation did creation do this willingly? 
Did creation itself say, I'm going to take on tornadoes? Or did creation itself say, earthquakes, here you come? Hmm? Where did it come from? So creation waits eagerly for the revealing, which is the resurrection. Creation was itself subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it. Who is this? Who subjected creation? The creator of creation. Right? And this this should for you bring up questions like, you ask why these things happen. Right? That's where, that's where natural disasters, that's where what we would tend to call like natural evils would lead us. Why, Lord, would you do such a thing? Right? Why would you allow a tsunami to wipe out thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands? Why would you allow the very city that we live in to be obliterated by tornadoes? Why, Lord? Now, there's answers to these questions. We, won't, we don't have all the time in the world to answer them today, but might I suggest for you that there is a greater storm, a greater catastrophe that awaits us all that we need to be awakened to so that when we realize that this life has nothing for us, we start looking for the one that does. Right? So who's subjecting? God is subjecting. Is He subjecting it for the sake of futility? This is in this, this very verse. Why is He subjecting creation? Why is creation... Why do we see the things that seem off about this world that we would look to and say, why did you create it like this? Was it for the sake of crushing us? Was it for the sake of pushing us to the point of despair? This is where a worldly view of this would point us to. Right? This is where like the world would look and they would see no possible reason that He might allow such a thing. To the point that you would say He would be evil for doing such a thing. But Scripture says that this subjection that was put upon creation because of Him who subjected it, which is God, was done in hope. In hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage. We're in verse 21 now. That the creation itself might be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. How do we know that? How did they know that then? Because here's the reality. Part of the reason that you hope that the earth that comes is new in a completely drastic way is because you look at what the earth has that's out there that you look at and you're like, I don't want tornadoes there. Nor do I. I want earthquakes. I want natural disasters. 
Here's, here's, what I want, here's what I want us to see here. Is that there is a sense in which the world that we find ourselves in today has been subjected by its creator, the same one who, who knows the very moment that you will pass from this life into the next and has known that for every single person that would ever live, who is wise, who is good, who has done this himself for his purposes that are not futile, but that are done in hope, could it be that much of the things that we would look out of this world and say, I don't want that in the next, that it just simply won't be there. It will be the better version. It will be futility, the one who's currently subjecting it, releasing it from it, right? So we see, and everyone who has ever lived for any amount of time and has looked out at the world has seen the beauty and the terror that this world has to offer, right? The beauty, the things that you're like, I hope that's there, or I couldn't even envision heaven without that. And then there are other things about this earth that you look and you say, that could never be there, could it? Right? I want us to understand that God has subjected current creation in such a way that it leaves us with that. Right? It leaves us with that feeling of longing for something better. Why would He do that? Why would He do that? And I would go so far as to say that He's wise in doing this. Because you know yourself well enough to know where you go when you you live lives of ease. This is the same reality that when he says that it's hard for a rich man to get to heaven, and you're like, but I want to be rich though. That at the same time, you understand yourself, if you sit and think, to know the dangers you would get yourself into if it was that good. Right? And if you can't reflect on yourself and see that, you can look out at those who've achieved that and see that it still left them lacking and longing for something else. So God has subjected this world in such a way that it encourages that reflection within us. Right? But here's the thing. This text... points us to this creation that's been subjected, longing for the resurrection because something will be achieved for it in the resurrection. Right? That's why. Why else would creation long for? Creation wouldn't be longing for it so that it would be completely destroyed and annihilated. But the, the thing that makes sense when we look at this, when we look at creation, not willingly, but being subjected by God in hope, creation itself 
longs for the resurrection of God's people. The revealing of God's people. Let's continue this because in verse 23, And not only the creation, but we ourselves who, are the, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly the adoption of sons, the redemption of what? Our bodies. So he's, con- he's connecting here in this verse, this idea from verse 18. Right? It's like when you consider the sufferings of this present time, when you consider the tragedies that you've lived, some of which have been um, the result of either your sin or other people's sins, some of them are just, it's just life happens. Right? Sometimes the buildings collapse. Right? Sometimes things just break down. Sometimes accidents happen. We see it. We see what's not right, but we don't know how we would fix it. But we long, as well as creation, longs eagerly for the same thing. Creation longing for the revealing of the sons of God. We, the sons and daughters of God here, longing, waiting, eagerly, groaning inwardly, awaiting adoption... And that adoption being consummated at the redemption of our bodies. What, that is another way of saying at the resurrection. Creation itself longs for the resurrection. I hope that you see that. I hope that you see that. And, and if you see that, maybe you're just beginning to see that. I want you to ask yourself the question is creation itself longing for its own complete and utter annihilation or in the same way that we hope for a body that's better for a life that's better could creation itself not also be longing and hoping for better i think so i think so um So with this, kind of circling back to where we began tonight, um, and this is is in conclusion. When we think about heaven eternal, I want to encourage you to see the resurrection of Christ as the first fruits for which we can look to and hope for our hope for our own bodies, resurrections, that we can look in the same way for creation not to be simply thrown into the trash heap and a do-over, but instead we can look for a restoration, a releasing of that subjection, right? Because if He's subjecting it, He can release that. Right. Um, So I think that we will look back billions of years from now to that moment that we call the resurrection. And it will not be the end of what we can see, but it will shape how we see everything. With that, we'll close.